Yes, well, this is a very exciting episode of Under the Bar mm. Podcast, Rawdon, because we It's got a nice vibe, Tom. A performance vibe. Yeah, it's got a real performance It's got vibe. a performance vibe. Peter, paper, picter, pecker, performance peckle, pie. performance, penultimate, pepper. <laughs> now, now, penultimate is the one before ultimate, One before Tom. the ultimate. Mm. Now, uh, Rawdon, we get to introduce a new Fresh blood. mind mm. to the UTB audience out mm. there in UTB land. Mm. Mm. Uh, Outside of this Millennium Noggin. Yes, out into the multiverse. Mm. So we've got Andrew Triana is mm. coming on the program today, and that's a name you probably haven't heard of before. Yeah, and, um, and I'll just jump in there, and uh, this is, it's not Broder- many that, that Broderick says, you got to get, you, uh, uh, yeah. this guy you got to get on. got to get him on. So we, yeah. we, we, we had it on, a, the authority spoke. Yeah. I think we can make a fairly bold prediction mm. and say that in, you know, five to ten years' time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Andrew Triana mm. will be... Recognised as mm. one of the the brightest minds mm. in the space. Mm. He'll be there with his crayons, uh, writing on windows, with his wax textures, wax 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 pens, and uh, writing on the windows, formulas, equations, equations, getting kicked out of the restaurant. But that's how his mind works, Tom. Yeah. So his thing, um, it's actually been quite funny behind the scenes, Rawdon, with your interactions and, yeah. and trying to tee things up. Obviously, you know, like he. Yeah. You know, very good at what he does. Yes. Other aspects of life, mm. you know. The back end. Uh, I think Broderick said he actually did see him once arrive with, you know, two different shoes, both right yeah. ones on, uh-huh. you yeah. know. Like that wouldn't surprise <laughs> me. All over the place. Well, and having spoken to him, that would not Surpri- surpri- yeah. surprise us. Yeah. yeah. No, it was an absolute pleasure to have him on and uh, we're going to listen to him today, yeah? Yeah. So his thing is um, basically, I guess, using... No, let's talk more broadly. Mm. He's wonderful at creating training environments Mm -hmm. that uh, put an individual in a very specific emotional Mm. and physiological Mm -hmm. state Mm -hmm. to elicit a performance outcome directly correlated to the training goal. Yes. Uh, You know, he's a strongman competitor himself. Mm -hmm. Yep. He works with a lot of athletes. He looks at what they're trying to do, what qualities they want to express in their sport, mm. reverse engineers yep. the whole yep. process, yep. and does some really tricky little magical special things, like so hands-on yeah. with, with his work. If you were an athlete, he'd be a great uh, coach. A great person, great coach. Yeah, great coach. coach. Yeah. And really encapsulates coaching, I think. And uh, very, very thorough, and much like yourself, I'm, I'm a bit more like, here's your form, fill it out. I'm not really going to pay attention to the form. I'm just yeah. going to do what I do because that's why you're here. Yeah. Uh, but fill it out anyway. But uh, like yourself, I know you spend a lot of time, uh, devil's in the detail there, mm. and, and really nutting out uh, what, what makes that individual athlete uh, tick. And I think uh, Triana might be next level. Yes, yeah, so Tommy Hewitt, and then some. Certainly yes. for for his his uh, ultimate end yeah. goal of, of performance in in a in a giving sporting yeah. event. Yeah, so it was really interesting and some really uh, really cool concepts that we've we've I think we've pinched a few. Uh, so yeah, v- well worth a listen. Young guy, but but really uh, you know switched on. And uh, ex- the other thing that I've got to say, extremely passionate about what he does, and, mm. and that I, I I found quite infectious. You know, I even got. Uh, Tempted to, uh, you know, contemplate doing a bit of strongman uh, or some sort of performance training. <laughs> but then I remember the the hernia and the hemorrhoids yeah. and it's like uh, the knees and, and the like, shoulders. Yeah, you know, I'd have to get on that uh, the anti-aging stuff. You know, a bit of yeah. bit of GH to uh, oil the joints if I were to pursue that. But mm. absolutely awesome to chat with him. Yes, 
Um, so we'll get to him in just one moment, Rod. And mm. I think a, an interesting thing that I sort of took away from the discussions with Andrew, because we're doing this over two parts. Yeah, two So we'll talk today. Because yep. we yep. started, it's, we were just going to do one, but there was yeah. so much to get through that yep, yep, yep. wasn't going to And look, we probably will get him on again and on various topics because Absolutely. he's a, a pleasure to listen to. But certainly the it made me think about what kind of state I'm in when I go to train. Mm. Sometimes mm. as a PT... Uh, particularly on those busier days, and I'm sure yep. a lot of our listeners will connect with this one. Mm-hmm. You know, the the training can sometimes become an afterthought when business is is busy yeah. or you're working yep. on other yep. things, and you yep. just sort of leave one activity, mm-hmm. and you've got a space of time within which you train, and you get in there and you train, and it's yeah. kind of a half a, a thoughtless process. Half fast. Yeah, whether it's half fast or not, you're still carrying a state of emotions and physiology yeah. into it. Yeah. So. I think it's well worth thinking about what your pre-workout routine is like, what you're listening to, what you're thinking about, what yeah. supplements you're using, yes. you know, what state you're creating emotionally, physiologically. Uh, yeah. yeah, and and I think his his big point was what I took away from uh, hearing him talk about his training is and his program design. It, it strikes me as every session that an athlete has working with him is a step forward, meaningful, like it, mm. meaningful, exactly. Mm. Like it was. There's no wasted wasted sessions. So yeah. I think it was having the, 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 I guess, the right tool for the right job. But whatever the uh, happened on that day to sort of leave that and, and I guess have the, the, the tools at your disposal to actually put you in the, the right frame of mind to actually apply yourself uh, in session as required. So I think that's probably yeah. one of the things that influences uh, his success at, at that, that end goal with, with individuals that he's working mm. with. It's because every... And if you think back to... You know how you and I train, and I think it's one of the things that uh, gets a little bit lost with with long-term training. You know, like uh, there's just a lot of those sessions. Depends what the end goal is, of course. And if it's just uh, just training and, and maintaining, then perhaps you can have that attitude. And and I think we can all attest to to, to when we uh, when we get a, a better result or we have a specific goal. You know, every session is more like what. Andrew's describing with, 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 with the way he programs, uh, designs programs, you know, they, they do become more, each of them becomes more productive. And when that occurs, all of a sudden those goals that were, well, they, they become attainable. So, um, mm. yeah, I think re- there really is method to the madness there and, and having that skill set to um, set yourself up in the right frame of mind uh, to get the most out of every session and, and know what you're trying to achieve in every session as well. I yeah. think that's important. I think that's very important. What, what are we trying to get out of it, you know? Yeah. All right, mate. Well, look, uh, that was a, an enjoyable little discussion there. We'll call that the penultimate discussion, The penultimate. The, the, the <laughs> ultimate discussion is coming up with come. Triana. Yeah, yes. Yeah. All right, let's go to Triana right now. Yes, well, look, we're back in the studio again mm. here, Rodden, and it's mm. exciting. Very professional. We've got a professional hats on again. Now, we've just actually... Uh, by the time this has gone to where it's water's gone under, under the, bridge, the bridge, but we've been spending quite a lot of time with Roderick Chavez. With we brothers, we had him down in Australia, and there was one conversation we we're having breakfast with brothers, and he was saying yeah. you've got to get this guy Andrew Triana on your show, mm. and he described a situation where they were in some sort of restaurant. And Andy got excited about something. We well, had some sort he had a of wax a marker, pen, like a, or some a crayon or something. Yeah, he, he a wax crazy. pen and was was drawing diagrams of I don't know neurotransmitter pathways or mm. things like that up on that the window. That probably cells. A nucleus could have been up there. And they all got kicked out of the restaurant, which was funny in itself. But I thought the best thing about that was that he carries a wax pen just in case the well, scenario should arise. Well, I mean, we've got our, just in our pocket here, a little wax pen. <laughs> oh, no, I don't. Clearly not as uh, equipped as uh, our next guest. 
he started a business called the Performance Vibe. He's yep. got a Bachelor of Applied Science or in Applied Exercise Science. Oh, smarter than us. Yeah, much smarter. And he also does enjoy some strongman competition. I think he's yeah. done a bit of CrossFit and some powerlifting and all kinds of stuff, but the strongman is where his heart lies. Yeah, yeah. But um, this should be a fascinating cool. conversation. Andy, thank you for your time and welcome to the podcast, mate. Uh, thank you guys for your time. I'm really appreciative of the opportunity to be on and uh, I'm looking forward to what we have in store today. Very good. Right, to get us started, Andy, most of our listeners might not be aware of uh, what, oh, they you, will be, Tom. what you do and where you've come from. So can you give us a bit of background as to uh, what your life has, what's been thrown in your life to bring and, you to the point of where you are? And, and also, before you get started there, Andrew, um, what makes you tick fundamentally, which I'm sure will be interesting in itself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess uh, it really, I'm just like a, kind of a gritty human being. And uh, I'm always the person that takes things one step too far just to know for the sake of knowing where the boundary is. Uh-huh. And uh, maybe through a few stories, you'll see that overarching theme. But it started in high school. I lost upwards of like 80 to 90 pounds um, wrestling. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was very, very overweight and had uh, an overwhelming ambition to change that. And uh, throughout high school, I lost this weight. And I found myself going to college to pursue the science and learn more about what was happening inside me and why I loved it so much. And uh, in college, I met, or I went to Springfield College to be specific, in Massachusetts. I met with Dr. Davidson, Dr. Pat Davidson, and the Springfield College Iron Sports team. And uh, they turned me specifically onto strongman. Uh, throughout that time, I'd competed in powerlifting a few times, and I've done so once or twice since then. But strongman, like you guys said, has really encompassed my time. Um, after school, I took biology and organic chemistry at a local community college to fill some gaps that I felt like I had lost out in my education as an undergraduate student. Uh, then I did go to a Springfield College graduate program for about two weeks, and uh, it just that rigid school structure at the time wasn't the right fit for me. I yeah. think returning to my undergraduate, uh, like the location of my undergraduate degree, didn't help. But overall, that was like an eye-opening experience, and it kind of empowered me and the performance vibe and everything that's about. Um, so I think really what makes me tick is just like taking that grit and not being afraid to go in a direction that might be like a little riskier, a little dangerous, and finding like peace in the fact that I know I can just maybe work hard enough to make it go by. But um, in a brief history, that's where I've come so far. When you uh, were accumulating this weight that you ended up having to lose, what was going on? Well, you're obviously a smart guy. Like, did you not sort of recognize that what was happening with your lifestyle or why you were putting well, on fat? Maybe emotional, emotional yeah. stresses there? Uh, no, it was honestly like a cultural thing. So both my parents were born in Cuba. Uh, so I'm first-generation American of Cuban descent, and my whole family speaks Spanish. So I grew up just eating, like rice and beans and all these like just very very calorically dense meals Mm -hmm. and in that culture it's a like a good thing if you eat a lot so I was just constantly in an environment where I was pushing myself to eat more just to get like satisfaction and approval from others as a young boy so um, I just kept eating and eating and developed a crazy appetite and I didn't necessarily have the anthropometrics to make the appetite fit if you know what I'm saying yeah so by the time I got to high school it was an unfortunate scenario where I was only four foot eleven, but I had the appetite and it was taking in the amount of calories of someone that might have been like six or seven feet. I was just not necessarily eating poor quality food, but yeah. I just like would just crush food all day long and lots yeah. of it. 
Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was just like a, that type of thing where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, you don't want to stop eating more because you feel like, like it's normal. And then change is difficult. So uh, the cost of change is eating more when you're in that cycle. And uh, it's just difficult to break. And, and tell me, Andrew, um, was it the just the fact that your output went up when you got involved in the, the wrestling and whatnot? Or did you make conscious changes to actually, did you realize that? And it's like, hey, I'm eating a lot of calorie-dense food. I know energy balance is relevant. Let's let's tighten that up a bit. Or is it simply you're just moving more and the weight came off just because your activity levels went through the roof? Uh, it was like, so the first week or so, I noticed that without changing anything, I lost some weight. But I knew something wasn't right and I knew I could get more out of it. So I also just like heeded the advice of my coach. He told me, like, how do I feel after I meal? And I always said I was stuffed I, as much as I possibly could. Yeah, and he yeah. just told me, make sure I only feel barely satisfied instead. Yeah. So I just like took that small advice to heart and uh, I just kept taking small and better pieces of advice along the way and that just kind of made like a, you know, facilitate a large outcome over time. That's absolutely fascinating, man. I love that because I think when we hear what you're going to say today on the topic that we've, uh, we're going to delve balls deep into first up, um, a lot, I mean, that's really great. That was just a pure behavioral, intuitive, well, you know, just eat until you're you know, just satisfied, not over that. And I mean, how simplistic and and obvious does that sound? You know, like, well, that probably means I've had enough food and I haven't had too much that I'm stuffed. You know, and if I have to the point I'm stuffed, a lot of that will probably get stored as fat. I've never used that advice, but uh, that that's uh, really cool, man. I love that. I don't even know if he necessarily knew what he was doing, but the way I see it as it's like simply just following directions. Like mm. one of the biggest things I have issues with clients or in general with people is that like when you speak, they don't take connotation to the word or value to what you're saying. They kind of just like automatically listen to what you're saying and regurgitate some response that they thought about ahead of time or something. Yeah. So I attributed that working to me to more just like I actually listened to what he said and applied yeah. it. Like, oh, I'm relatively satisfied. I'm done eating now. You know, yeah. so it wasn't as much as maybe it was good advice. Where I just, uh, I was able to heed it and apply it very well. What a crazy concept! Actually, uh, listening or, or doing what the coach says, mm. or, or, or prep or something like that. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who would have thought? My principle these days is the penny doesn't drop until their behaviour actually changes. Like the amount of conversations I'll have with the client about just the basic principle of energy balance or fat loss yep. or fat gain over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And they, they do understand, they cognize, yeah. but it's not they until nod. they nod. It's not uh-huh. until they actually start changing behavior that you go, oh, okay, now the, the penny now has dropped. I know what Tom was on yeah, about. Yeah. That wake up call where it's like, oh, it matters, huh? Yeah, yeah. and they experience that. So, Andy, that was like uh, a physical change. So, you were eating less and training more, and there was this physical adaptation going on. But your thing seems to be more of a neurological psychology uh, adaptation where there's a there's a physical response to training but it's sort of driven by these nervous system adaptations that allows you to express strength and do all this cool stuff so do you want to just unpack that that principle and how you got into this specific field of your interest so um i already mentioned him once dr pat davidson was really the gateway for like deeper level education. Mike Guadango is also a great coach who opened um, the most of like essential like concepts of training. Yeah. But uh, Dr. Davidson really like took me to the next level, just exposing me to topics. My thing is, uh, I've always had like 
even to this day, like, no matter, like, what happens and changes in my life, I don't have, rel- like, really impressive body composition, especially early in my strongman career. And um, I was really, like, an up-and-down type of competitor where I would have great days or very low days, and my arousal yeah. curve was all over the place. And um, I had one breakout competition in Shreveport, Louisiana, where everything really came together on, like, a confidence I learned about the arousal curve for the first time and maximizing that. Mm-hmm. And I really learned about like creating uh, an environment the day of in a place that might be new that you still feel comfortable in. And it gave me a path to uh, like what we call today like vibe out. And it's just express yourself. And through that self-expression, you achieve your best performance. And I was able to uh, like really, really make a jump in how well I performed and at what level I was doing so. And yeah. that just shocked me because my body composition didn't change. Nothing really changed other than like what happened in my brain. So uh, that led me to read The Brain That Changes Itself. Again, uh, a reference from Dr. Pat Davidson by Norman Doidge. And that book was really what changed everything for me as far as like diving into this type of stuff that we're about to talk about. Um, and it's basically a really, really great story based way to read and learn about neuroplasticity it's he recently released the second book in the series but this first book is absolutely essential if you want to even start understanding why nervous system intervention and performance is important because the nervous system itself is just a communication pathway and like me and my friends call it skin suits like where muscle systems are skin suits they're stupid they're connected to a communication pathway that's connected to a brain and that CNS is no more than a communication pathway so really what we're talking about when we talk about all this CNS type training is we're talking about like maybe motor cortex adaptations or these higher-end learning centric adaptations that then transfer into high performance outcomes that's absolutely That's awesome. fascinating. I can't wait to uh, slide into this uh, this topic of conversation, and and I can really sense that it's something that's close to your heart, and and uh, you're very passionate about. I will just chime in there, and um, I we had uh, you might be familiar with him, but Dr. Jordan Shallow, um, based out of California. There we had him out, the Muscle Doctor. You might be familiar with his work, but he um, he was he's done a few uh, segments here, and he came out on a little bit of a. A tour, um, a tour down under, and uh, on his own bat, and um, that's the muscle doc, and did really well. And uh, like I said, we've had him on the podcast a few times, and absolutely awesome. Have him on, but I was talking to him about um, uh, he was getting ready for Pro Roar and uh, in Melbourne, which is also a strongman uh, competition that you're probably familiar with with that side of things. But at the Arnold Sports Festival. Yep. And I uh, ended up, uh, I think, tearing his bicep or pe- uh, tendon in the pec or something there, and he couldn't end up um, competing. He, he pulled only. But I was talking to him, one of the many conversations we had about, uh, you know, ha- how do you go, you know, at the big meet, you know? Do you, do you, do you sometimes you, you, you bomb? And, and he goes, nah, bro. Like, and he pointed out that he, he actually played uh, professional hockey where, you know, I think he mentioned on the podcast, you know, sometimes he would rock up and he forgot his skates. So he said, meh, just put some of the skates on. He played with, like, you know, skates that were too small. But because he was so conditioned to playing in different environments and at different places and traveling, not traveling, everything else, he was so 
in tune with the performance side of things and that just carried over him with his powerlifting and he actually would do something similar to where he would play in different states and travel and all that sort of stuff he actually as part of his prep would would try and train in in multiple different you know some of them would be different plates some of them different bars different platforms so he didn't care what rocked up on the day like he had conditioned his body to a degree which is probably some of the stuff you're going to talk about i'm sure but but sort of uh, conditioned himself to deal with any adversity so it was a very uh consistent experience on game day like it, it, that his performance was always uh, albeit obviously things can happen but but far more consistent than perhaps some other lifters that would sort of be up and down and you know if they 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 forgot their 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 socks that's it oh you know the the the, the I, I don't have my right socks on that's it and i can't pull now you know and it's like huh what so he would actually yeah. consciously try and change as many things as he could. So he had to just adapt and perform, you know, under any given circumstance in prelude to the main event, which I thought was really, really cool. Absolutely. What a great transition story. And like, that's kind of part of the reason why I love this topic so much and why I chose to talk about it today is because it's that guy cannot follow a specific training program in his entire life and that would probably won't negatively impact his performance at all there's absolutely something to be said for once you have like you know this criterion amount of uh physiology of sports specific skills of Mm. performance abilities and you know to be at that high level the only thing really separating them from each other is those behavioral aspects Mm. so it's like directly really going to make a difference if he can get this far without doing anything too too specific but he has like that mental fortitude and does all these things Mm. that's a really really individual specific but high level like performance-based training program even if it's like not named and written on a piece of paper he's doing all the right things you know yeah Mm. absolutely fascinating all right, Tommy, we we so, happy with uh, with what's happened so far? We're ready to release Andrew the the shackles off him and uh, and uh, get into it. Oh yeah, I mean I'm itching. I can't wait for you guys to take the chains off. So when you find a good time, uh, just bring it up and I'll be more than ready to tackle it. Yeah. Uh, where do you want to go first, uh, Andrew? Where are you thinking of starting, mate? Um, basically, I just like kind of wanted to like outline a few things that would be important. So like the word transfer means that like when you were training or learning or whatever a specific skill how does it impact other skills that you didn't train or learn or uh touch on specifically how does it impact them positively or negatively and then uh so that's just transfer and then transfer of training in sport specifically in our context is going to refer to what are you doing in training that's going to tangibly make you better in your performance outcomes because like once we've all like recognized that high level strength conditioning that you maybe the sets and reps you do aren't as important as what you can actually do you know like maybe total yes. work or maybe other variables are more important and this concept of transfer of training and sport is the main way we speak and quantify that mechanism so Anatoly Bondarchuk uh, thank you to Mike Guadango for turning me on to him very very early in my career is um, the man in my eyes he has a lot of resources out there I mean not him but people um working of him who was uh, that Andrew just if you want to say that Anatoly again. Bondarchuk so um, my spelling will probably be pretty off but it's <laughs> A-N-A-T-O-L-I-Y I believe 
and so. Bondar Chuck. You can probably sort of spout, uh, spell that out. Yeah, but Bondar I'm looking Chuck. at my bookshelf now. I have Transfer of Training and Sport Volumes 1 and 2 cool. right there that I can see. But I know there's a few more and a couple of videos you can get. So definitely check him out. All right, very but, cool. Um, movement prep, like I kind of said earlier, is kind of like my thing. I'm the movement prep guy, and I think I'm so drawn to it because it's really what impacted my training the most. Like I was never the strongest off the bat or the most gifted or the most aesthetically um, pleasing, yep. but I was kind of able to like figure things out and I have this brain that likes to be obsessive about things even at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so uh, I kind of live with that. Yeah. And I've been able to quantify like that movement prep more than anything else I've done in my training has made me a better athlete, a more successful athlete and a more pain-free athlete. So the reason I think it does that so effectively is because of what I mentioned this concept of transfer and training yeah. to sport and I think movement prep is just a potent potent modulator of that so before I like dive any further do you guys want to dissect that at all absolutely yeah, yeah. dissect away get the scalpel out all right cool so um when I teach and talk about movement prep I say there's three aspects that we're hitting on. There's a biomechanical, physiological, and a behavioral. So in short, meaning that we want to change your anatomy and your resting posture from when you weren't at the gym to angles or positions or things that we like in the gym that not only make you more pain-free, but more importantly, correlate to the acute bout of exercise you're about to do. And hopefully, if you do your programming correctly, also correlate to angles that we want to see in a sport performance outcome. So as I continue to talk about it, you'll start to see that the way I teach and talk and think about transfer of training is really not as scientific as it is logical. And I use science to give it validity and highlight details along the way. But it's really a logical and sequential order that you're looking at your training and you're looking at things and decisions that you're implementing and making sure that you have an objective lens. And we'll talk about that more later. But um, that's really all it is. So next would be like the physiological. Um, what type of environment am I looking to put you in prior go to going into like, I call it the meat, or like the real resistance training or the actual skills that you're gonna be working on that have the most impact on your training, like your biggest goals for the day. Yep. So there's a couple different things we can do there generally. We can stimulate you so we can kind of get you into, uh, like I hate, using the word energy system but like a steady state specific to an energy system so if we're doing phosphagen work i can get you into a state in your uh mainly in your phosphagen system in which you're doing work at the same rate that you're replenishing atp and being able to recover from it and that would potentiate you to do maybe some heavy deadlifts or some phosphagen work in your training because you're already in a state where your physiology is cycling highly so your metabolic waste is being uh, replaced and shuttled off at a rate that it's appearing so you're in a good spot to handle some workload so uh, ideally once you get past the point of just having enough general physical preparedness to be a high workload athlete yeah. this is really key because now going into this like bout of exercise whether it be glycolytic 
now that you're stimulated, you can more effectively perform this session. So this is great for the days that you're beat up and stuff, and you don't think you're going to have a good session, or it's the end of a training cycle, and you need any help you can get just to feel good enough to do what you need to do. Um, that's when we would implement some type of like stimulatory training. I try to use really, really simple words, so like I said earlier, like so you can really extract the meaning of what I have behind it. Yeah. Um, just to jump in here. and fatiguing movement preps. So, like, like I said, those are going to the potentiating is going to push past the point of stimulatory, and it's going to basically put you in your peak um, state of preparedness for the day, right when you go into your resistance training. So this is good so that as you go through the training, you're pushing yourself deeper in that rabbit hole a little bit, and you're also making sure that you get the best session possible. And then finally, fatiguing is something that you would use pretty far out from a sports performance uh, competition, but you're basically purposely diving into whatever you would want to be diving into and fatiguing yourself prior to going into the energy system. So I like to use hypertrophy as an example because it makes sense. So like a 300-yard glycolytic shuttle would be a very logical way to accumulate a ton of, let's say, like non-oxidative glycolytic growth hormone like responses that are you know favorable for bodybuilding because they're myotropic and all these things so doing that before maybe some high rep squats even though it'll be harder and it'll increase the bioenergetic cost of the training session you're ultimately going to get a better training adaptation acutely and chronically because a you'll be doing obviously more work that day but then because you're doing more work that day obviously you'll be able to adapt over time so, so the, I guess you're talking there a lot of that uh, transfer of all that stuff has a very deep meaningful to transfer over to the uh, task at hand, the, the, the event, the meet, that type of stuff. And, um, and also what you're describing there is that uh, what we discussed earlier, that, that, you know, that arousal curve and, and making sure you are at you know, close to your peak arousal at the right time. Those two things would be encapsulated by what you just described then? For sure, but um, when we're talking that arousal curve, so like that same curve in an arousal setting, it's applied to psychology. Now let's take that curve and apply it to like physiology. So I said yep. like specifically um, like the rate at which you're doing work is equal to the rate at which you're recovering from the work. Yep. So it's that same concept of that curve, but in this specific scenario, I'm specifically talking about like internal physiology. Behavioral is that last step. And that's what we're talking about, that arousal curve. Okay. So uh, the behavioral portion of movement prep is basically putting you in a state that I think is favorable to do that uh, lift in. So for example, like you guys said, I'm a strongman junkie. Like if you have a high rep event, I want to do something that's going to make you feel aggressive in your movement prep so that you can supersede that sensory, that crappy sensory feeling like of that lactic type of burn mm. when you're doing that high rep exercise so that we're putting you in a position to like obviously make favorable outcomes for the day. So like for me, the training week is what I think is very, very important on the like more acute scale and obviously over time everyone's in agreement that like long-term planning is the most important but i think there really really is art in the training week itself okay and, and all that stuff you're describing there uh is applicable that's to your sessions in the week not just exclusively to the the actual main event um when you are at the strongman competition and and are you sort of um 
almost conditioning yourself by, you know, engaging in those training sessions that would be a similar way to the meet when uh, at each of the events, you know, that, that, that big transfer over or and or is it yes, but to a slightly lesser degree where you keep something in reserve where you pull out all the stops for the actual event and or, or are you just emulating what's going to be at the event so when you get to the event you're already doing that and it's and it's quite an easy transfer that's a great question so um i'm going to answer it kind of in two parts so the day of competition um you are actually already in a very very high state of arousal from as far as 48 hours out from a competition that you have a high amount of emotional connection to so if it's like the biggest competition of your career or the olympics we can actually see alterations in heart rate kidney function catecholamines in the blood uh all that type of stuff circadian rhythm so by the time you already arrive at the competition you're in a heightened state where you are more prepared to do what you need to do yeah. and uh, I think to answer that question on like another perspective is movement prep to me is a way to get more quality work in so for example maybe you can do one less set on your 3 by 10 because of the movement prep that you did beforehand yeah. but not only is the adaptation much greater you're getting better quality work in so for that one set of 10 you lost that tonnage difference is going to be made up by better adaptations done earlier in the session. So the way I see it is movement prep is augmenting and facilitating what you want out of the training session, and that is basically a way to do more work. So that's why like a lot of performance vibe athletes uh, tend to have very high work capacities, and it's not specific to any energy system or any activity. It's just that you can handle a lot of moving. You can do a lot of things with load. You can just repeat a lot of like contractions without getting overly fatigued. And that in and of itself is probably the most important thing you can have any high level athlete have, uh, just because the more things you can do without getting hurt, then the stronger and the more you can ultimately increase your performance. And I think, uh, just to cut you off there, Tommy, I think that the um, it sort of comes down to getting that uh, quality return on investment. Like it sounds like, when you adopt some of the things we're going to go through your sessions each session as we sort of say on a whim uh, it all adds up to that final yeah you work hard now you'll you'll be better on stage for me with my physique athletes but from a uh, performance perspective as well that's sort of echoed but but we're just sort of hoping that you know if we go through the numbers here hit certain numbers do certain amount of volume that it'll transfer over but i guess what your describing here with with like you said the the performance vibe athletes is making each of those sessions productive and and having that uh, much greater transfer over to the actual event um, that they're uh, preparing for so I guess um, you know ensuring that the 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 training sessions are albeit maybe a, a, a set of 10 less here and there but it's a it's a far more productive you know, two sets of ten that's going to transfer uh, more significantly over to the when the main event comes around. Absolutely, and to just look at it again from another perspective, if you're getting, if you're the same strength athlete doing two sets of ten and getting more out of it, that means that you can do that same two sets of ten again faster 
than the person who did the three sets of 10. Because not only did you increase that glycolytic work capacity by maybe the shuttles or whatever you might have done before, since you handled less mechanical volume and load, mm -hmm. you can therefore hit it again. So who's to say that two by 10 doesn't just as easily turn into a four by 10. Now you might be handling sure. more mechanical load mm -hmm. yeah. with less fatigue and each session you're in a better state to do so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was just painting one one picture there, but you're completely right. Maybe it'll uh, transfer to to uh, a much more uh, voluminous session because yeah. you can handle it, like you said. So there's quite a few moving parts in there, Andy. So many, when, many moving parts. So when you're actually going about setting up a program or a system, do you have a specific structure that you go through? So you mentioned the phosphogen system do you look at an activity or the sport and say okay that's the kind yeah, of physiological good, system yep. we're running here so we've got to periodize back from that and think about how we're going to tap into that system or activate it before the training session to you know clear the metabolic waste yeah. and all that kind of stuff so how do you go about program design big picture yeah of course so um all my athletes will be able to attend to this is i'm, I'm slow so uh, I ask a lot of questions, like not to them necessarily, although I do ask them a lot of questions um, about uh, myself and as like what my decisions are as the coach as I go. So I check myself a lot and I really go from general and objective all the way down to specific decision making. So I don't actually touch the paper to the pen metaphorically because, you know, things are online now, but um, until it's the very, very end. So the first thing I do is I go through like lengthy assessments with people where not only do I obsess or obsess, obsess I do obsess, I assess uh, about the tangible needs of the sport. I also assess them and their skills and qualities. So like skills being the actual movement language of the sport and qualities kind of being like that non-tangible psychological and physiological backing to do those skills over and over again or do them under integrity. So once I kind of have an idea of what you need to be good at the sport and what they already have, I try to look at the differences. Then I create my very first priority list. So my very first priority list is like very, uh, like I said, general. So I encompass anatomy, I encompass physiology, I encompass behavior. I might just put the word grit. I could just put deadlift and nothing more. This is just like shit I put in a paper bag and I'm just like trying to get everything in here. Yep. Then I start creating different types of lists. So, okay, on a skills list, they have a very inefficient deadlift. They have terrible gait under load. And on the qualities, you know, maybe they have a very, very low lactate threshold and maybe they don't sleep well and then you know I start creating different lists that all correlate together and then um, my next step is I reverse engineer it so I look at how I would ideally want to peak them so what is the best peak I can possibly give this organism uh, in reference to their sport so that answers your like latter question about is it going to change yeah I'm very individualist and I almost feel at times I'm more of a, like a consultant giving specific advice than a coach per se because I kind of just work with whatever is coming and it's almost more of a human to human interaction thing than like a sport specific coaching type deal because uh, coaching it like it's called personal training for a reason and uh, it's because it's personal and it means a lot to these uh, athletes in their lives and it might just be because I typically deal with higher level athletes but you it gets pretty intimate to do 
uh, to do and more to demand this much work from athletes. Like there always needs to be some type of satisfaction to match the expenditure. So yes. if I'm asking you to do more work, it doesn't mean that you couldn't do it before, but I'm asking you to do so. If I'm purposely asking you to impart more damage on yourself, there needs to be some type of acute or long-term or satisfaction somewhere to justify that as an organism that makes sense you know we yeah. talked about communications and skin suits and stuff these things need to be justified in order for that to happen so once i reverse engineer everything and i have like so i have this peak then i have the accumulation block for this peak then i have an alarm phase or maybe i have an intensification phase here and blah 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 i have a ideal plan and as coaches we all know that things never go according to plan so that's why I have this rough outline first, and then I spit it back in real time week to week with the client. So then week to week as things change and life happens, and like I said, like these human to human interactions happen, maybe they didn't understand something or the gym was closed or whatever, you know, the program just changes over time. And even over the course of 12 weeks, what you thought your peak would look like, even if you thought it went smoothly, the actual peak looks very different. And I've tracked this before, um, mm -hmm. mostly in my own training and with a few clients and that's just how it is so that's kind of why my lens of the type of coach I am is changing over time as well so yeah. that's really like the process of how I coach and that's why I keep like my movement prep and soon we'll talk about learning and more specific transfers or training but all these concepts I use I try to keep them very accessible in language and I try to keep them very general because once you're smart enough to just get the basic physiology we're talking about and get the concepts uh, coaching becomes an art and less of a textbook uh, style career we're talking about uh, having good intra and interpersonal skills having the ability to be objective and be empathetic on the same email even uh, there's a lot of different things that go into being a high-level coach and once like I said once you understand that physiology It becomes an art. Can you masterfully blend an alarm phase into an accumulation phase into intensification into peaking? Without it feeling like major changes like don't get me wrong Sometimes you want those major changes, yeah. but a program shouldn't be rigid in how it feels You should never feel too unprepared for what's demanded of you and that requires almost an artistic way to select your exercises and make your exercise prescriptions because yeah. even though it's the last step and this 4x20 hamstring curl can have the same exact non-oxidative glycolytic uh, response as this uh, other hamstring exercise with like the same workload there's something different to it and that's the art of being a coach so um I guess that kind of answers more than a little of your questions, but absolutely awesome. I just before you move on into the intricacies of what we've just uh, outlined, communication-wise, it sounds like you're very uh, intimate, like you described as a, a, I suppose, a personal trainer uh, slash coach. How I'm working with you? What do you require from me? Can I text you ten times a day? Can I call you? Do you have check-ins daily, weekly? Like, how often is the interaction between your the lines of communication for you? It sounds like more would be better. Oh uh, yeah, in general. So like, I talk about the coach-athlete relationship a lot, and uh, in general, it's usually a ton of communication at the beginning. Because obviously, I'm sure you can just hear by me talking, my stuff is different. So there's that, excuse me, 
Uh, or my last meal is still sitting in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> learning curve you have to bypass. There's the communication barrier. I don't even know you. You don't know me. But this sport is my whole life. All right, let's get into it anyway. So we have to get over all that stuff. Yeah. So at first, the communication is typically very high. And I try to be consistent and professional and establish good communication habits in my weekly updates. So everything is done weekly as far as like the qualitative and quantitative uh, feedback. Yep. I have subjective, objective, video, and like note-based response systems that I use for all my athletes. And uh, that's like your big check-in. And then kind of like text message and uh, subjective stuff throughout the week is really on an as-needed basis. And communication really just varies with uh, how much I'm intervening with their life normally. So for example, if I, like, I have a client who is competing as an alternate in World's Strongest Man, but is also competing very, very soon after, and uh, we only recently started working together. So there was a lot of communication involved because like not only is it a unique scenario, but it's also like the learning curve is right here. So we had like more communication than maybe normal with some clients. And then clients who are just like maybe looking for less life altering goals. It's more of just like weekly we talk, have good communication once a week and move on from there. I try to make it really like bang for your buck and efficient centric because like bad communication is bad communication even mediocre communication is bad communication anything i tell you that isn't making you better as an athlete is then going to inhibit the good stuff i tell you so i try to i'm obviously empathetic and i'm a good person and i'm there for them supportively when i need to be but i try to be precise in my words so that that's the things they latch on to i try to use good cues and similar cues often so that there not only becomes an emotional connection there becomes that familiarity thing and then it's part of your arousal curve when you like uh everyone at lightning fitness knows when you hear andy scream commit it just kind of i it's the only cue i use when someone maxes out typically and it just becomes like a trigger for people so there's a lot of different like things that go into even the verbiage you use in your questionnaire with people so my questionnaires for example start with like three quarters of a page of an essay of just what the questionnaire is about what I'm, i'm expecting and like some like just typical talking and intro stuff because like you said like that communication does really matter well, you've mentioned the the learning curve a few times there, Andy, and I guess with what you're doing, there's a, a level of education that needs to go on so the client can really sure. buy into the rationale behind why they're doing what they're doing. It's more of the parameters I have. So, uh, like I said, just like in my feedback, I have objective and subjective notes. I also have that in my, ex- in like my training. So, I just try to... Uh, you have to read the whole program before you get to the gym. You can't just read the program when you walk in and then just do it on a whim. So it's not that uh, I do anything that's crazy sciencey. All the words are pretty like layman's and they're easy to understand. But like I said, it requires you to have good direction following skills. It requires you to be proactive. It just requires you to have like effort, intent, and preparedness. You don't need to be the smartest person in the world because it's my job. Like that coach athlete relationship, we have different responsibilities. But if you're willing to read what is on the paper and do it with the parameters I set forth for you, and just like read and you know, just kind of do your job, and I do my job, it just works out. Yeah, absolutely awesome way to put it there. And um, it would be wonderful if all my athletes uh, understood and did things that way. But um, you mentioned uh, video as well. Is that a weekly thing where you're sort of, if they're online, you are 
getting feedback of their their sessions via video or is that just the, those initial stages when you uh, critique that uh, potentially shitty deadlift or whatever oh i meant just more just like video like uh feedback so like they get their training videos and they would send them to me and i would just make uh comments and stuff yeah so is that weekly they would submit videos as well or just at the start oh yeah so typically with my athletes what i tell them is if you want uh, I separate into two people. There's Coach Andy and there's Regular Andy. Uh, regular Andy is the athlete, uh, the athlete, the guy who competes, and he gives totally different advice than Coach Andy. So if you want Athlete Andy to look at something, so maybe you don't want as keen of an eye, or you just want to get a quick check-in, I tell you to text me on the spot. I usually have yep. pretty good text message response time, but I'm just going to give you a quick check-in. But if you want the video to be like, watch 10 times in a row and to be like analyzed yep. and then i tell people to email it to me weekly so it's more uh like uh, just becomes more and more evident i just try to have really good communications like if this is what you want then this is what i'll do so if you text okay. me a video that you are it's a lift that like a split jerk that you're like pretty concerned about because you have crappy form yeah. and you want me to sit there like it's just not the right mindset you know yeah. when yeah. i'm at yeah. my computer or like even though I work from home, I live a pretty regimented lifestyle, and I try to do that on purpose to be a successful business person. Mm-hmm. So even though it's my desk, it's this is my work zone. So when I'm on my computer doing my work, I, I'm just in the zone. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's just the type of response inherently you're going to get. It's not like a neglecting type of thing. It's That's just yeah. how it is, you know? Perfect, perfect. And besides that, Talos, Talos isn't there... Uh giving his perspective on the video either out in the street if you get a text you know mm-hmm. you need his uh, professional Absolutely. eye yeah. just to critique it so I, I i don't tell so uh i don't tell people i live alone like obviously i live alone but i tell them i have my roommate and my roommate's the dog and <laughs> yeah. he doesn't approve hey, of things I, you know i've got a roommate like, too Jay. has just as much say as i do realistically yeah, of course <laughs> awesome Okay, where are we going, Tommy? Righto, so Andy, after we've been through the movement prep, the biomechanical, the physiological behavioral, and you've worked on those aspects, what's the next step in this master plan? So uh, I try to come back to transfer of training one more time uh, when I'm creating this. So I do the movement prep first. So uh, in my training with my most elite athletes, I typically follow, I guess, like, if you wanted to be categorical about it, you could call it concurrent periodization. But basically, like... I handle a bunch of different training goals in the same week, and that's what I mean about it becoming an art and using laws like uh, training transfer and uh, interference and yeah. learning and long-term potentiation and all these things yeah. to make sure it still works and you get the results you want. This requires me to, like I said, I go slow. but. So I write all the movement prep for each whatever type of day this person might have, yeah. and then I make sure like I kind of go through the session in my head if I was them. So if after I do these things, am I in the environment I want for this session in this block with these goals? So I kind of go up and down all the questions I asked myself multiple times uh, earlier. And I say, am I meeting all these goals? Yes. Does this make the person ideally feel like I want them to feel? Yes. Okay. Now I move forth in programming this training session. So, uh, I always write my own programming and I follow it with multiple other athletes of mine when I do it. So I usually try not to compete alone just to keep me objective, to keep me like accountable and make sure I'm actually doing the same things that my athletes do. So I can at least have some efficacy when I say this feels like it should feel or this is what I want it to feel like. 
And um, then I kind of just program the rest of the training goals and the rest of everything else separately. So once the movement prep's done, then I get into actually programming for the day. So uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about to really match training transfer very well, specifically in strongman, but in realistically all sports performance outcomes is learning. So this brain coordinates and talks to uh, this skin suit via the central nervous system and we need this brain to make good decisions and it's not just pondering uh, how you want your feet to look when you deadlift it's more so are you properly aroused are all the physiological like things peaking correctly at the right time and are you going to make the correct behavioral decision in that instant so um, maybe not so much thinking about like uh, being in the zone or reaction times or hoping or having faith that things happen, the training adaptation we're actually looking for there, although it's not as tangible as per se hypertrophy or getting stronger, is a decision-making thing. And that's kind of where that behavioral part of movement prep interwines with your actual training. So if you have a really, really gritty event, like a Conan's wheel or a mass distance carry. I want to make sure that on that training day, you're doing things that tangibly feel like crap. And that kind of leads into how I program intensity in most of my higher level programs. So again, uh, I guess you could call it auto-regulation, but I use these words that, so uh, I have primal, I have sleep, focus, I have survivor, I'm probably forgetting one or two. But these words are just extremely vivid and through having good communication with the coach and athlete and obviously every now and then I make weight recommendations uh, when doing this and assuming this is an athlete I have very good communication with, I let them pick most of their own loads and that's why I said the program requires you to read because the way I see it most of the time, if the parameters I set forth in my objective and subjective notes tackle everything I want tackled and the word I used for intensity resonates with you properly, it should be very easy to make a weight selection. And if that is the case and we have good communication, you objectively know what it should look like, you subjectively know what it should feel like, and you know kind of, like I use the word vibe, you know what it should feel like. This should be a potentiating exercise. This should crush me etc etc then that athlete in the moment can actually make a better weight selection than I can of course every now and then I make some, uh, some recommendations you should be in this range and it also depends on the athlete and what they're training for but I found that to be far more valuable as far as quote-unquote auto regulation than per se RPE because the biggest issue I was running into was RPE seems to be valid in comfortable uh not in the sense of it feels easy but comfortable as in like training you do often and uh more so like phosphogenic longer rest training because if you do something that's like non-oxidative and very very lactic it's gonna feel extremely difficult whether it's a bodyweight sprint or a tire flip or a down like a 
downhill sled drag or like whatever it may be if it's very very depriving of oxygen it's going to give you a high rate of perceived exhaustion regardless and that's going to fog the correlation to how much actual uh damage or intensity might actually be used in the exercise and uh this was just most prevalent to me because strongman is primarily a glycolytic sport so i was running into issues with that so i've found that Although it seems weary and although my limiting factor has become communication with the client and understanding with the client, uh, this method of regulating intensity has become far more successful for me than anything I've used in recent years. And um, So Andy, you're actually, when they actually get their training program, you'll have the exercise and then you'll use, rather than just have RPE, Eight out of ten, you'll actually put keywords that elicit the kind of feeling or emotional state they should get from the the exercise. Absolutely. So I have a reference sheet attached to all programs. It's the first sheet, and it defines all the words I use in detail with like a paragraph. It tells you how I want you to warm up for certain lifts, and it's it's just a reference sheet. All the things you need to know to follow my program correctly. That's That's super cool. uh, yeah, I like, like I said, there's a lot of reading involved. I type a lot of stuff, and like even for something like hamstring curls, I might have a paragraph next to objective and subjective stuff, and that's why I move slow, and that's why it takes a while. But um, so I have uh, the exercise sets going to, towards the right on an Excel sheet. Exercise sets, reps, intensity, which I use the word um, rest. Then I have objective notes subjective notes uh then it goes video angle yes or no and where i would like that video and then finally there's your notes so this is where the client sends me back the excel sheet and they kind of turn it into a training log so i say you put actual loads used and use one to three words to describe how it felt and then save your emotions for my subjective questionnaire that you also fill out weekly so uh this creates like a compounding effect of not only communication, but making sure the athlete's intuition of weight selection is good, or at least good in my eyes and what I want them to. So even if one week it was like, hey, like I wrote down robot, which means like uh, devoid of arousal, but high in intent, uh, but you hit a PR. So I know you weren't feeling that good. So maybe please just like revisit this next time. You know what I'm saying? So each week it becomes a way that I can kind of mold the athlete's intuition on how I want them to lift. And that's what makes the program good. Um, Maybe I think everyone seems to learn it early on, but they forget the value of it. It's the best programs are the ones that the athlete has the most faith in and the ones that get done most similar to the coach's intent. So like the coach's intent is what's going to get the athletes better. My communication skills are what primarily puts it on a piece of paper and then that deviates from my original intent. And then the athlete reads that piece of paper and then we further deviate from my original intent. So the closer I can keep that gap and the better understanding and uh, communication I can have with the athlete, that's going to make my program work exceptionally well, even if it's a total shit program. So then any type of even like vaguely decent science I can use is just compounding and multiplying how effective the program is. So then just, you know, kind of having a little bit of a knack for what I do, I think I've been able to find 
high amounts of success early on in my coaching career with clients just because of the model I have for the business and for the coaching itself and the relationship I create more so than even my methods might be, to be honest. I think yeah. just I'm setting up a scenario where there's no way that a small mistake can manifest into a big one. That's absolutely awesome, Andrew. And and tell me, was that uh, going to uh, tip the hat to anyone that, that alluded to that um, that way of uh, critiquing or getting feedback for a certain lift was that inspired by anyone, or was that something that that you a with Triana your uh, th- three a.m. in the morning created and uh, and or did you did you start getting some feedback from athletes saying, "Man, that crushed me," or "Man, I was robotic like that," and it's like, oh, "Okay," and you started to see a trend and and create it because I think it's absolutely amazing. So it's half Robert Sapolsky, half being obsessive. So like even when I had – or I'll talk about Robert Sapolsky first. He has all his behavioral psychology 152 uh, lectures on YouTube. And um, he's really how I got into how um, important your language is and how important it is to be objective versus categorical sometimes. And uh, that's at least how he starts his lectures. Then he gets deep into behavioral psychology, which I feel like you guys would love. Like, honestly, like the brain that changes itself in these Robert Sapolsky behavioral lectures are like everything. Um, and I was just obsessed. So like I said, really early on in my coaching career, I recognized that my intent deviates the second I write a program, deviates even further when the athlete reads it. And then finally, once the catecholamines are firing and the athlete feels like an athlete, it deviates even further as far as what actually happens. So um, I just kept being obsessed with trying to create a more refined system. And I just kept trying to ask better questions and get what I wanted. And then um, dropping out of Springfield College was... um, or my master's program at Springfield College was huge for me because at first, you know, I was really upset. I felt like a failure. I was like, man, I considered myself someone who was intelligent, and I considered myself a good coach, and I considered myself someone who's at least like somewhat respectable and a decent human in the performance community. How come this path didn't work out for me? Mm. And I realized that all along, like, I never, my coaching and all the things I've done all along didn't really fit the bill. And I kind of embraced it. So um, being like a high-energy obsessive person, I just sat on the computer for like three or four days straight and made these methods – or not these methods but these models and refined them to this point. And then I just went all in with the performance vibe. And um, it's been a couple months since that's happened. But truthfully, that was like a a difficult experience for me to overcome. But it's what made me the coach I'm becoming right now. Uh, just let me be like you know empower what makes me a coach yeah awesome andrew and um tell me once you've uh described uh what you want from the set or or, or from the exercise i.e you know crush robot soul leaves body one of those um do you then have numbers and then then that influences where they go do you then want to see uh potentially progression in numbers or numbers just throughout your whole uh, mesocycle are, are not that relevant in the gym. It's more about how they feel from each of the sessions. Uh, so that depends on the type of periodization I'm using. In that, like, I use the word blo- like I'm trying to stop using the word block because it like makes people think block periodization. I use the word mm. block instead of the word cycle. Um, but for whatever tr- cycle, whatever I'm using, if I'm using, let's say, like a 
semi-linear or strength-oriented or something um, more of that sense. I do like obviously to see progression, but that should also happen in your protocols. So if you're going from three by three to four by two, that drop in one rep should theoretically mean the athlete can handle slightly more load. Mm. If I allocate you 15 to 30 seconds more rest time, this creates an environment where if we're on the same page, you should want to use more load. So that's yeah. why in the subjective notes, I might say, um, I don't know why I'm thinking hypertrophy. I was just talking to one of my bodybuilding clients. This 3 by 10 with 90 seconds rest is not primal. Notice that. This 3 by 10 with 90 seconds rest is to be indicative of what you're capable of. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to do similar protocols that will let you know when the 3 by 10 with 90 seconds rest is the one I want you to push it on. So I might say okay. day one of this of this training day, when you do this protocol on day one, I want you to make it a robot and take it easy so yeah. that you can have a number in mind and what I want you to hit later in the week with the same protocol. So there's a lot of different ways I monitor progression and load. Yeah. And sometimes it's even as simple as my uh, biggest addition that's helped me as a coach is my subjective feedback sheet. Uh, do you feel like you got something out of this week's protocol? Yeah, on this deadlift protocol, I left feeling stronger. Even if you don't, even if it was the same weight or it wasn't like uh, a textbook progressive overload method from week to week, mm -hmm. if I have an athlete that finished this training cycle or even had a great week on deadlifts, I'm cool with that. You, yeah, you guys see yeah absolutely i guess also with that periodization system knowing that you have primal coming up later in the week or later mm -hmm. in the block i mean it's an emotional state that i don't know the last time that i really felt primal mm -hmm. in the gym particularly over the last month or so with all these mm -hmm. seminars and everything going on but it's something that you can i think has a shelf life in terms of how frequently you can tap into primal for yeah. example Absolutely. And so now to start some tying to some physiology and some learning with the listeners, um, there's some really, really different training adaptations and things that happen when you tap into that primal mindset versus robot. And I don't know why it might not be as clarified in school or in uh, what's talked about today, but the acute and chronic adaptations are very, very different. So, for example, when you tap into that primal state, regardless of the type of exercise you're doing you're going to see large amounts of mechanical and myofibril breakdown as large as as well as large amounts of cellular and organelle damage in that same muscle cell so even if you're doing a one rep max we are kind of defying that textbook physiology where you're saying oh a one rep max shouldn't be able to induce mitochondrial biogenesis because of the blah 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 but if you're hitting a one rep max three times a week four times a week five times a week if you're doing it under these specific movement prep states where that one rep max now has a very very different internal environment maybe under this one rep max deadlift you just did some uh, extensive plyometrics followed by some explosive jumps and throws with controlled rest so I know that you're in a state where you've depleted a lot of your ATP synthase and you have a lot of things going on in the muscle cell predatorily before that deadlift that arouse you to A, create more myofibril damage, but B, now we have a, somehow have a more even matchup of the type of damage we just did in that training, even though you only did a one rep max, let's say. Now, I know that's like an extrapolated random thing, but that's the type of mindset I try to bring to 
to my coaching methodologies. So if I want you to go primal, I want to make sure A, you are getting the most out of it as an athlete, and B, that primal effort isn't wasted. I want to make sure it's something that's going to match up with as many priorities on my priority list. I want to make sure it has the most transfer to training. So um, now I'm training for a very, very heavy neurological show the adaptations I wouldn't want and would give me low transfer in training right now are maybe some very, very glycolytic adaptations. Uh, it's just the name of the game and the type of sport I'm in. This show is very different than some other strongman shows I've done in. So I would have low transfer in training or transfer from the training of doing some very, very intense glycolytic work for an extended period of time close to the competition, whereas that might not be contraindicated for a different competition. So that's just something I try to highlight as well, is is this training getting the most out of it? So there's no need for me to be doing anything near primal on maybe these glycolytic adaptations being a week or two out from our competition, but I still want to do them. So one of the biggest issues I saw and so being so obsessed, when I read books, I like to really like or used to take them as fact. So one of the biggest issues I was running into in strongman periodization following uh, block periodization laws was the law of interference in the way it's stated. Um, if you're doing a multi-sensory, a multi-skill, and a multi-energy system dependent sport, how can you effectively use block periodization as a model of training? And there really shouldn't be any confines to any tools in the periodization toolbox because periodization is just the way we're getting to our performance outcome. It's the way we're trying to get transfer and training. So when you look at it through that lens, any periodization tool or any method of periodization should be able to be used not only cohesively, but at different times in the same training block or the same training uh, macro cycle or the entire training program for one person. So uh, that's just something that people really need to move towards as well is that any periodization method could be effective and you could be a coach that uses many different periodization methods and you're still right and you're still getting the performance outcomes you want that's the name of the game is getting high transfer in training and making adaptations that are high on your priority list so if we're looking for just hypertrophy we can dive a little deeper thankfully because we're a little bit smarter so maybe do we want this hypertrophy to have a large cross-sectional area due to type 1 oxidative muscle fibers you know deep to the bone or do we want it to be from glycogen capacity do we want it to be like mostly non-oxidative or do we want it to be on that more oxidative glycolytic uh, oxidative side of glycolysis do we want it to you know you know what i'm saying so yeah, yeah, under yeah, the yeah. hood are these Tra- adaptations transfer. we're making high on the priority list you know it sounds like uh you know, you want again. I think I said it earlier, but but your lifts, uh, time in the gym to have as much uh, return on investment. You know, like okay, if you are going to do a uh, go primal and pull a one RM, then we're going to do all this, so it's going to have transfer over to a similar scenario. Uh, you know, in competition, which I think is. Uh, uh, really awesome way and look I'm probably doing discrediting a lot of coaches out there that probably do s- things like this but for me it's uh, it sounds really obvious and mm. um, but it, it makes sense from my perspective it's it's awesome and not just having transfer but maybe set up in a way that has a multitude of physiological responses yeah, that, yeah. That, playing 
Multiple have systems. Time. Multiple systems. Multiple. Yeah. The mainframe. <laughs> Get the mainframe cranking. Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at it this way. So uh, one of the confines I find in like the way uh, periodization is currently programmed or talked about or written in books is that – so let's say I use this example with women. Um, we all know that there's that intense rush, that like dopaminergic euphoria uh, and sometimes it can lead to aggression in the right environment with that really intense like non-oxidative glycolytic work. If you do crazy sp- suicide sprints or you, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yep, yep, yep. Cool. So that's a really positive behavioral adaptation for maybe a female or a male that has confidence issues in a lift. So let's say I have an athlete who is really struggling to learn the skills on this lift or it's a confidence thing. Either way, the scenario works. Maybe I want to put them in an intensely, you know, high metabolic waste, uh, acutely unsafe, you know, as far as like heart rate and homeostasis go, not a biomechanics of course so acutely unsafe and really aggressive environment first now they're going to go in there so they're going to have a multi-sensory sensation going on in their body they're going to be very fatigued they're going to be sweaty they're going to be a little angry they're going to be feeling you know a little bit trippy almost that like there's that weird sensation of like humor and aggression to it and now they're going to a be able to execute more mindfully on the lift but b if I plan that right, I can use that glycolytic training to my advantage, even if it doesn't match the training after, because maybe it's a multi-energy system sport, or maybe the way I plan that training day is all the other work for their phosphagen system and their aerobic system are done, so that way it's easy for me as a coach to say, screw it, let's just put it in there just for the behavior aspect, because our other bases are covered. So now I'm actually tangibly programming behavior modulation and if we want to get into like you know quickly like talking about some like lucrative stuff of like strength adaptations we want to create an environment with high amounts of catecholamines and in most strength training environments we have acute changes in testosterone towards dht so i'm sure broderick is like talked your ear off about this Mm -hmm. but three or five alpha reductase act on testosterone and give you DHT. This is responsible for like those male-like effects. And this also affects the central nervous system. So essentially what's happening in this really aggressive uh, PR style uh, environment, what you're trying to do on a learning aspect as well as a performance aspect. And you'll see uh, at the end, it also happens to tie into insulin sensitivity. So they all live on this axis that all relate to performance. So we have high amounts of catecholamines in the blood, we have high amounts of cortisol in the blood, so that's turning non-glucose-like things into glucose. So it's essentially feeding the catecholamines to release glucose and there's a cycle going on there. We have uh, some acute sex hormones and some peptides that are also acting on the central nervous system. So all we're doing is increasing the speed and the uh, impactfulness of our brain's decision making on the skin suit. So we're really only ever working at that intermediary section when we're talking about strength. So how fast can my brain get my skin suit to recruit X number of motor units, let's say. Mm. So if we're trying to create an environment that you get better in that, 
we want to create behaviors that make those things come out. So that's where having a good coach-athlete relationship comes in handy is what's this guy's personality is like? How do you feel about this event? You know, you start asking questions and now maybe if I do the right things, I can match up the physiological, the biomechanics and the behavior in their movement prep and give you uh, an opportunity to hit a PR or to do something that is really, really great for you confidence wise, but now is also a great training adaptation because let's say you have this hour long movement prep that leads up to this incredible one at max deadlift. I always tell my athletes, usually when you PR, walk out of the gym right away. You leave, you go home, you go to sleep. The last thing your brain is processing from that session is that deadlift PR. So uh, because of some like neurological laws I've learned from Dr. Davidson, what essentially that's going to mean is it's going to be the most impactful. So not only do we create an environment for you to confidence-wise make a PR or whatever that makes you feel good, we create an environment where you're going to get better at it super normally. So not only are you going to get better, like a PR makes you 10% better, let's say, you might get 15 or 20% better. Of course, I used arbitrary numbers here uh, because you create an environment that matches the PR, that made the PR greater. So maybe you uh, performed better than you could have because of that internal environment. And now it's more for you to adapt from because there was a lot of similar work done. And finally, if you really know your stuff and you could tie your biomechanics in there, now maybe I created an environment since wise where you felt both femurs in internal rotation you felt your ribs depressed you felt your hamstrings activate which matches the physiology and the behavior and now we got you so much out of that one set of one primal exercise yeah that's absolutely fascinating and i, I gather in that state apart from the physiology that in, mm. in the brain maybe even some of the neural pathways that it's such a strong psychological physiological emotional moment mm. that it's like this memory this mm. imprint on your brain rewired that's exactly what it is and because uh, you know performance is behavioral as well as physiological so the tools that you have inside you are only as good as the showcasing that you give them so if you can't attack that behavioral portion as a coach then you're just hoping that they figure it out on their own and that just like wasn't okay with me yeah, yeah. That's, that's absolutely awesome, Andrew, and um, I think we got a really good insight into uh, a little bit about how you work, how you tick, and, and what you've designed to, to maximize performance, and, and it's quite refreshing to hear uh, somewhat for Tommy and I, uh, certainly a, a different perspective on things, and I love that, you know, quantifying certain uh, words to influence or desired uh, outcome of a, of a certain set which is absolutely awesome and I'm going to pinch that and say it's my own yeah. um, what we might do is uh, wrap things up uh, here today and then we might get you back into the studio and actually go through uh, maybe some supplementation food choices yeah. and you know do we have carbs for a big 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 meat I mean are they going to have benefits to the nervous system or fats or you know don't eat a certain time before the training session and and those movement uh, patterns and, and prep for various lifts so i'd love to delve into those so our listeners can actually take some practical uh tools to to go and implement and and try firsthand to see if uh see, see it work for themselves uh how does that sound for you absolutely i would love to be back on i really you know i love speaking i love sharing and uh you guys like put on a good show so anytime 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I've got a list of yeah. questions. We've yeah. only really just scratched the surface, mm. and we wrote a note. And I'm sure there's made a little note. Then we're like, oh, it's been over an hour. What do yeah. we? We better get him back on and and. And do I think this. Uh, knowing Tommy as well, uh, uh, Andrew, I, I hope you're going to have some. Uh, you know, I say one word, and his and his toes curl, and he and he <laughs> shudders down his spine. But I just mentioned <laughs> the word modafinil, and he and he and he. And he knows it sort of it can work well, but he's, he did it once, and he can talk you through his experience ne- ne- next yeah. next week. But maybe the uh, I've seen some of your videos on Alpha GPC and and caffeine, and 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 that's why the, the food side of things I'd yeah. love to sort of get, you know, what you found worked the best from a, a really a performance aspect, um, and of course those uh, those movement patterns and prep patterns that you're talking about for the big transfer over to um, said event. Absolutely. I know those are all great questions, and answer, like I would love to come back and answer them. Wonderful. All right. Absolute pleasure to have you on, and uh, for the to break you in uh, onto the uh, Under the Bar podcast, mate. An absolute pleasure from my perspective. I'm sure, Tommy. Uh, your thoughts, Tommy? Yeah. Look, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm excited. I get to step away, get some questions together, come back, and yeah. and pick his brains mm, a little mm, deeper. Mm. Maybe get that wax pen out. Yeah, we we got we had to have, we do have some glass here, so we could certainly uh, do some writing on the, yeah. the 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 walls of the uh, the radio studio here. Absolutely, I'm pleasure. dangerous with a marker. <laughs> yeah. Well, what we might do is uh, we'll get you on next week, and we'll continue for round two. Uh, thanks so much for round one, and um, yeah, look forward to chatting again soon, mate. Yeah, feel free to reach out anytime, guys. Uh, looking forward to hear back from you as well. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Thank mate. You. Well, that was such an enjoyable conversation, Gordon. Mm. What a what a refreshing young man! Refreshing young man, exactly. Uh, I really love the, um, you know, the having key words to actually, uh, rather than I want you uh, an IPE of uh, nine out, out of ten, 10 nine yeah. and a half. It's like no, primal. Primal. I think that's absolutely fantastic, and I've I've actually uh, since uh, having this conversation with. Uh, with uh, Mr. Triana, I've actually suggested it to a few other coaches. And they're yeah. like, man, I'm going to use that. That's that. really good. You know, <laughs> yeah. so, so it's uh, there's a bit of a performance vibe uh, f- filtering through Sydney as, as we speak. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, awesome stuff. And uh, for me, it was quite a, a fresh perspective and, yes. and, and a different way of looking at, at yes. the same thing um, and arguably a, a more effective way to get to that end goal, I yeah. think. Very exciting. So we'll get him back on next episode. We'll uh, some of the stuff we wanted to go through a bit more specifics on yep. the, the periodization and also some supplements. Supplements, I think he goes through. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that, which is really cool. And then I think in the future, Rod, and we might have to get him on just to maybe uh, break down some of the energy systems in a little uh, more, uh, little more uh, detail. Uh, we can yeah. always use a little refresher on energy systems. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's three of them basically. <laughs> yes. Creatine phosphate's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, have a lovely day, and uh, we'll be back with another. We'll UTV. be back with Cam. Back with Cam. Back with Rawdon. Cam, Cam Club Menegoni. We'll get Triana. He'll have uh, nut butter on the fridge. Please.